This evening I'd like to speak about the form and the spirit of this practice. For many people there comes a point in their meditation on retreats when they find themselves asking the question, what am I doing here? What is the point of what I'm doing? This question, you may have come to it already. It may be a question you have yet to arrive at. Sometimes it feels difficult to relate the actual practice to what we are seeking for in meditation. Sometimes it's not easy for us to see or to understand how this practice or how the form of a retreat actually brings about change or insight or actually brings us closer to what we are longing for or what we are seeking for. Now this question of what am I doing here and what's the point of all of this, it's not a question that is reserved for newcomers to meditation. For many people who have a great deal of experience in meditation, they find themselves asking the same question. Now, I would say that very few people end up on retreat accidentally. Very few people actually end up coming on retreat even just out of a little curiosity. For some people, they come to retreat out of a place of crisis in their lives. This is simply an actuality. Their lives may be in a, a very difficult state of crisis and they come to retreats looking for answers, looking for resolutions or looking for healing. Some people don't come to retreats out of crisis, but they come to retreats as a way of responding to some deeper, perhaps deeper, spiritual core within themselves. That coming to retreats is a way of responding to a sense of longing or yearning within their heart. Most everyone comes to retreats looking for change. I don't think anybody could honestly say that they come here in order to be more intimately acquainted with what an aching knee feels like or with what a chaotic mind feels like. Most everyone holds within themselves some aspiration for change. This is totally valid. I mean, I appreciate that many times we caution you against having expectations of the meditation uh, or against having expectations of yourself. But the truth is that if you had no expectations at all, you probably wouldn't come here. And there is a place of vision or a sense of possibility, which is a very crucial part of meditation practice, which is indeed even something to be cherished. You know, without a sense of vision, without a sense of possibility, quite frankly, we could end up just going through the mechanics of this practice without really having a sense of what is being offered. Some people come to retreats 
looking for a sense or a deeper sense of meaning or direction within their lives or responding to their heart's longing for a sense of possibility, for a greater depth of peace, of compassion, of understanding, of freedom. Sometimes the longings that bring us to retreats are very embryonic. We hardly even recognize what they are. Sometimes the longings, the motivations that bring us to retreats are very clearly formulated. In looking for change, it is clear that change means moving. It means movement. It means a path. It means a journey. That change in itself implies some element of transformation, of moving from a place within ourselves or within our lives, that we feel perhaps doesn't offer the fullest happiness or contentment and moving to a place within ourselves or within our lives that we sense is possible that offers us a fullness of peace of understanding this desire or this longing for change is sometimes called a divine discontent you know, and once the Buddha was asked, you know, well, you know, if your teaching is so much about letting go, shouldn't even the desire for freedom be let go of? And he said, yes, but not too soon. <laughs> not too soon. These are the longings or the motivations that get us here that actually help us to arrive in this place or time. When we do get here, then we face a level of reality which we often find ourselves struggling with. There is the reality of our inner lives, and we also face the challenge or the reality of a particular spiritual discipline or practice or path as we engage in it here. Facing that reality is the place at which some of our doubts or questions begin to arise. Sometimes as we sit and walk and breathe, it's not always easy to see and understand the meaning of what we're doing. Sometimes the forms or the practices that we're engaging in here can even seem to be somewhat inadequate in their capacity to answer or to respond to the longings that brought us here. Simply put, it's very, sometimes it's not easy to understand how watching our breath or going slowly or eating simply or not talking, it's hard to see how this is necessarily going to bring about any radical kind of transformation or any earth-shaking experiences. Firstly, I'd like to say that there is actually nothing intrinsically spiritual about any of the practices or forms or disciplines that we engage in here on retreat. There is nothing intrinsically spiritual about giving attention to our breathing, 
Otherwise, all of those here with respiratory problems would be far more enlightened. There is nothing that is intrinsically spiritual about going slowly or about being mindful of our body movements. Burglars and muggers are some of the most mindful people in existence. There is nothing that is intrinsically spiritual about simplicity. Otherwise, the poor in the world would obviously be far happier. Sometimes we might think of the silence as being spirit, particularly spiritual. But actually, for people with antisocial tendencies, it's a total delight. For a control addict, the discipline of a schedule warms their hearts. You know, they feel like they've come home. Here at last is all of the structure they've ever asked for. I think if we see that there is nothing intrinsically spiritual in any of the forms that we do here, then we would actually need to ask ourselves, what then does make this path or this discipline or this practice a path of transformation that in any way leads to deeper understanding and open-heartedness? It is not the forms alone that can ever do this. It's not even time. Time is not necessarily the most crucial factor. What actually allows these practices and forms to be a path of transformation, a path of deepening, are the qualities of investigation, the questioning, the inquiry that we actually bring to these forms would allow these forms and disciplines to be transformative is our own willingness to actually learn, to see in new ways, and to really explore a different way of learning. There is nothing that is logical whatsoever about meditation, and the mind cannot grasp it. The mind cannot grasp or produce transformation. The mind does know how very well to engage in logic and evaluation and comparison, all of which can be extraordinarily valuable tools in our lives, but they are not in themselves transformative. In meditation practice, we are actually learning to see and to listen with our hearts. One of the first things that I think that it is very important to accept in meditation is that in this environment and in this experience, you do not have a different mind, a different feeling, or a different personality apart from the rest of your life. No one has a special meditation mind that emerges only on retreat. So what this experience actually is for us, it is a microcosmic view of the whole of our life. Within this microcosmic view, we see ourselves and we see our lives. Meditation is not something that can be taken out of our lives and defined as being somehow our spiritual life. 
meditation is about our lives and the forms and the practices that we engage in in this experience serve us endlessly as mirrors. They are mirrors. Every one of the forms, every one of the disciplines that we use here is a mirror which shows us to ourselves, which reflects us to ourselves. These mirrors that we find within the forms here, they are mirrors that in themselves have no judgment and have no history, but they are always present. That the mirrors within these forms and disciplines in themselves are essentially neutral, and yet they become alive. The mirrors of all of the forms that we use here, they have the potential to become our teachers, through our willingness to see deeply, to look into those mirrors very clearly, to see beneath the forms, and to learn the lessons that are offered through those forms and through our intention to understand. Intention is one of the most powerful ingredients in meditation practice. To have clear intention, to know what we are doing, to know what our intention is in this moment. It is intention, the intention to see clearly, the intention to be awake, the intention to be present, that brings meaning and life to all that we do here. Without that intention, we just have mechanical prescriptions. Without that intention in meditation, it, it's almost like going into an art gallery and admiring the frames and say, oh, fantastic frames we've got here. They're really terrific. And ignoring what the frames hold. We don't come here to meditation in order to become perfect breathers or to gain medals in slow walking or in order to be obedient to a schedule. We practice within these forms of meditation in order to be free. And freedom doesn't involve a leap into some sort of transcendental, other, separated experience. Freedom means finding freedom, being free within all of these forms and within all of the forms of our lives. Now this evening I'd like to look a little bit at some of the mirrors that are offered to us on retreat and what they actually reveal to us. Now in the first evening of this retreat, when Richard gave the introductory talk, he spoke about the precepts, the guidelines, of non-harming, of not taking what's not freely given, of skillful speech, of not taking intoxicants, of not engaging in sexual misconduct. He mentioned these precepts and probably also mentioned that the precepts are never intended to be rules. I think sometimes we have a very interesting relationship to the precepts. 
One time last year, we gave, taught a retreat here on the precepts of the practice. No one came. Either we have a very virtuous sangha, <coughs> or else everybody feels, I already know this stuff. You know, what have I got to learn about the precepts? The precepts are actually the foundation of all transformation. I think we could say that without exaggerating. The Buddha once said that wise attention is built upon goodness of heart. Wise attention is built upon goodness of heart. And upon wise attention is built profound wisdom. There is actually no path that could be called spiritual which is in itself ethically neutral. Meditation is not an ethically neutral activity. It is actually an ethically charged activity. Meditation as a spiritual path is a path that is based upon goodness of heart, upon honoring life, upon integrity, upon responsiveness, upon dignity. Meditation is built upon qualities of heart, of compassion, of kindness, of sensitivity. All of meditation is actually dedicated to nurturing those qualities within ourselves which honor our own life, which honors all of life. It is a precious invitation to a change of heart. In Buddhist teaching, the precepts are given such emphasis simply because without the precepts there can never really be calmness of mind. There can never be true happiness or true contentment. And the reason why that is said to be so is that when we don't live within, with that goodness of heart in our lives, what we live with instead is many residues. If we live with anger or if we live with hatred, or if we live in an exploitative way or a heedless way, we actually live with many residues in the mind, that the mind can never come to rest. Instead, that the mind tends to be burdened with regret or anger or guilt or remorse or fear. I often feel it is very important for us to consider in our lives the impact of actually living in accord with I know in my life, for me, this is a challenge. This is not necessarily something that, you know, you just do. There are so many dimensions of harm, so many subtleties, so many subtle layers of living out of harmony with life, or so many subtle ways of not honoring life and what is true. It is so easy, I feel, to to live heedlessly, you know, or, or to live in a way of striking out or reacting because something disturbs us. I mean, there are probably many things that disturb us in our lives, you know, from the flies that buzz around us to, you know, the way our roommate asks, to the color of somebody's socks, to your mother-in-law. You know, there are so many things that have the potential to disturb us in our lives. And when we are disturbed, it is almost like we, we have the aversion that arises and the desire to turn away. It's not that we have the desire necessarily to harm, but sometimes 
the desire to be heedless, to not see, to harbor or to indulge in thoughts of anger or greed or hatred or judgment. Isn't this so easy for us to do? You know, and even to justify doing it or, or to feel that we need to do it. The precepts are a guideline, actually, for protecting our relationship to ourselves and protecting our relationship to others. For me, part, very much a part of a spiritual path is that willingness to be aware of heedlessness, that willingness not to harbor anywhere ill will. This is a practice, surely for all of us. This is an incredible practice. To abandon through wisdom, through compassion, any word or thought or feeling which carries or embodies hatred or greed or division. So the precepts as a foundation for meditation practice is an invitation to a change of heart, an invitation to commitment to a life of sensitivity, of care, of compassion. And they are the foundation of attention. Because truly, if you live within the precepts, you are at home everywhere in this world without fear. You are at home with all people in this world without fear or without remorse. The Buddha once spoke about the precepts as being the embodiment of loving kindness as a way of smiling upon the world and smiling upon ourselves. An embodiment of loving kindness because living in accord with the precepts is conducive to unity, to inner serenity. And the analogy that is used in Buddhist teaching is that living without the precepts is like living with a hot coal in your shoe. Your mind can never be still. Your mind can never feel at home or at ease within this world. Now, another mirror, or another one of the forms which acts as a mirror that we use on a retreat, is the form of the schedule, the mirror of the schedule. Now, sometimes people come on retreats and they look at the notice board and they look at the schedule and they see, you know, they say, wow, that looks really rigorous. Look, I'm supposed to do this all day. Okay, I'm supposed to be mindful all day long. There's no time scheduled for tea, you know, for naps for, you know, having a good read. There's not even any time scheduled for thinking. And you see for, for many people how the schedule becomes so fascinating. I mean, how many times have you looked at it? <laughs> Amen. I mean, you probably got it the first time. It's almost like you have to keep going back to check, you know. Is anything changing today, you know? Is there anything different going to happen today? You know, some people, it's a regular pilgrimage, going back to look at the schedule again and again and again. Still there, it's still the same. There's nothing new being introduced. And there's nothing being suggested except to be mindful. Now, it is interesting the way in which the schedule does act as a mirror in different ways for different people. For some people, they look at the schedule and it brings up all of the most deeply ingrained tendencies towards obedience, diligence, 
striving control. You know, they're the first ones there every sitting. They're the last ones to leave every sitting. You know, they're waiting for everybody else to get here so they can start being mindful. You know, they're wondering. You know, they're there every walking period. It's like, you know, here it is, that structure totally to conform to. For other people, they look at the schedule and it immediately brings up all of their rebellions against authority. You know, so when everybody else is sitting, they're walking. When everybody else is walking, they're sitting, you know. When it's time to go for a talk, you know, they they go off for a walk, you know. No matter what is suggested, always the contrary has to take place. And it's interesting because this can go on for many days before you actually realize you're a rebel without a cause. You know, nobody actually notices, you know, how wonderfully you're doing at rebelling against the schedule. Actually, nobody even seems to care. You know, so they are going through this dance of showing how independent you are and free from, free from authority. Meanwhile, you're just dancing alone. For some people, they take their response to the schedule is what they describe as being the middle path. It is, it is actually the path of the negotiator. You know, when the schedule is like that and they say, well, you know, there's seven sittings today, I'll do four, and then I'll take two as a nap time, you know, and there's six walkings listed, well, I'll do three today and four tomorrow, you know, and they say they're making all these deals with the schedule, always actually often trying to find that comfort zone, you know, that comfort zone. Well, I am making the effort, but I'm actually not extending myself too much because I might get uncomfortable. And, uh, so there's this negotiation endlessly going on with the schedule, which tends also to go on actually all through the meditation. You know, I'll sit without moving for 10 minutes, but then I allow myself a little shuffle, you know, and then I do five minutes, you know, and I pay attention for 10 minutes, and I'll give myself five minutes of fantasy, you know, and then I'll come back, you know, and that negotiation tends to go on and on and on and on. And again, it's always finding that place where I feel comfortable, you know, where my boundaries are not being pressed too much. The schedule is truly a mirror. It is an invitation. It's an invitation to submerge yourself in awareness, to actually find out what happens when you just submerge yourself in awareness. If the truth is there is nothing else scheduled except wakefulness. That's all that's on the menu on this retreat. And I can promise you now it's not going to change. So you can even let go of that burden of checking out every day. All that's on the menu is the invitation to wakefulness. Now this, I feel, is actually an extraordinary challenge to us. You know, to really just surrender to awareness. To just surrender to awareness. To find out actually what happens when we submerge ourselves in awareness. Now we see in relationship to the schedule, you know, to this, this unrelenting mindfulness that is suggested, we see the dances that our minds go through, 
you know, the aversions, the clingings, the, the self-doubts, the craving to find refuge in distraction or in fantasy. When we struggle with the schedule, I do feel it's important to remind ourselves that we're not actually struggling with this piece of paper. You know, we're not struggling with somebody else's authority. What we are actually struggling with, I think, or exploring, is our own commitment, our own inner commitment to sensitivity and awareness. And in the midst of those struggles, you know, whether we find ourselves negotiating, whether we find ourselves rebelling, whether we find ourselves in a submission mode, we need to ask ourselves, where is it that we actually want to be in our lives? Where do we actually want to be in ourselves? What is it that is actually a true refuge for us? What is actually a true refuge for us? And to really ask ourselves, is attentiveness actually a painful experience? You know, when we find ourselves actually wanting to jump off endlessly into fantasy or planning or distractedness or past or future, as if it's so torturous to be present, we need to ask ourselves, is attentiveness, in our experience, actually a painful experience for us? I mean, reflect upon your life. The moments when you have felt in your life truly joyful, the moments in your life when you have felt truly happy, the moments in your life when you've felt truly connected or appreciative or sensitive, for most of us, these are all moments when we are truly attentive. I mean, imagine you know, the birth of your child, you know, if you're, if you're at the birth of your, your first child, you know, and your mind's wandering, you know, you tend to miss quite a lot. Imagine, you know, the first time you ever fell in love, you know, and if you forgot for, you know, you got distracted in the midst of your, you know, your first meeting, you'd probably miss quite a lot. You know, imagine those moments, well, remember those moments when you've been with another person and there's been a true depth of connectedness, of course you are so present. Or those moments when, when you are out in nature and you're truly touched, you know, by incredibly simple sight or sound. When you feel it in your body and you feel it in your heart, they are all moments of true attentiveness. To be touched, in any real way in our lives, we need to be attentive. And that it is quite an extraordinary phenomenon that our minds spend so much time in so many devious ways trying to convince us that it is more fun not to be attentive. That it's actually more fun to be lost in some weird fantasy, you know, or some strange daydream or some, you know, obsessive dwelling upon the past or some, you know, vague plan about the future. How much energy we can give to those diversions as if they are actually joyous substitutes for being present. I mean, in our hearts, 
we know this is not so. What actually draws us so often to want to jump out of this moment is our desire to avoid the unpleasant and to pursue the pleasant. True attentiveness doesn't actually offer any real sanctuary for the eye. It doesn't offer any real sanctuary for the eye. Because the only real sanctuary that the eye notion finds is only within that which is pleasant and that which is comfortable. And the nature of true attentiveness is that it is unconditional. To be open is to be open to all things. To be touched is to be touched by all things, by the delightful as well as the painful. To be sensitive is to be sensitive to all things. The heaviness of heart we can experience as well as the lightness. True attentiveness actually has no conditions or preferences. And in that, it brings us closer to ourselves and to all moments. Sometimes we want to jump out of attentiveness and we want to jump out of, of wakefulness simply because we are close, because we are close to ourselves. And being close to ourselves sometimes evokes fear evokes aversion and evokes doubt because when we are close to ourselves what is revealed to us is not always what we want to see sometimes to be close to us what actually opens to us and what we are close to is at times uncomfortable at times challenging at times disturbing and when we are close to that which disturbs us the mind in its first inclination wants to jump away. The invitation to surrender in meditation is not an invitation to surrender to someone or to something else. It's an invitation to surrender our desire to control our prejudices and our preferences. If sometimes meditation practice is likened to what happens when you first light a fire. If you're out in the woods and it's cold and you want to light a fire to warm yourself and you first start to light the fire and at first as you do so and the wood is damp and the paper is damp, first when you light the fire a lot of what you get is smoke, it gets in your eyes, it gets in your breathing, your eyes are watering, you're coughing. And yet by continuing just to nurture the fire, to care for it, to breathe into it, eventually the flames and the warmth and the light comes out. And this is very much like the process of meditation. Sometimes it seems when we first come close to ourselves, we get the smoke in our eyes, we get the you know, the, the discomfort, we get all of these things that are arising by staying close, by staying present. The warmth and the light begins to show through.
Now another of the forms which serves as a mirror in this practice is the form of silence. Now the silence of a retreat is not a reward for those with antisocial inclinations and it's not intended to be a punishment for the sparkling conversationalists among us. Instead, the silence is intended to be a place of revelation. In Buddhist teaching, the silence of a retreat is called noble silence. We see and learn a great deal about ourselves within this silence. Now, the silence of a retreat, please, is not intended in any way to be a dismissal of the value of communication and connection. It is an invitation to come closer to that place from which all words are born. It's an invitation to come closer to that place of inner silence. To go beneath the world of appearances to a greater sense of depth. Now we all know that our words in our lives can be vehicles of kindness or of cruelty. They can be vehicles of connection and vehicles of separation. Our words are powerful. They are also the ways in which often we seek to find reassurance and identity. Before any of the words we ever speak in our lives, there is much that takes place before them. Often we don't appreciate that. I don't know if you've ever had that experience of opening your mouth and these words come out and they seem to be so directly connected to some kind of storehouse of conditioning and they're out of your mouth before you even knew where they came from. You know, our words are an embodiment of so much that comes before them. Before our words there are thoughts, before our thoughts there are feelings, before our feelings there is consciousness, before consciousness and within consciousness there is stillness. When we are so endlessly caught up in our words, we often rarely appreciate the places from which they come. It is also true that when we are most fearful and most uneasy and most anxious in our lives, that we are tempted to seek refuge and safety in our words. Because then we know, you know, through our words we gain a sense of knowing in our lives. We know who we are by how someone else sees us. We know how to define other people through our words. We gain and we lose reassurance. But you find even when we have the verbal silence of a retreat, do your words stop? No. I don't. We start talking to ourselves, you know. The mind chatting away all day long in so many words, you know, having dialogues with other people in our minds, you know, having monologues with ourselves. Sometimes people have interviews with the teachers they've never even met, you know, they're having these in-depth interviews. You know, the words are going on and on and on and on. Sometimes we see how in a day we are so guided by the chatter of our minds. You know, have you noticed when you walk outside here? You know how busy the mind can be? I mean, the world never invited any of this. You know, 
And yet here we are outside, you know, it's a fantastic tree, you know, that flower would look better over there, you know. I wonder why they put the fish pond there, you know, and, you know, the food should be served like this, you know, if they had a bit more of this and a bit more of that. You know, mind is going on and on and on. And in many ways, it's a kind of camouflage. You know, there's so much security within those words. We really feel like we know the world, we know other people, we know ourselves. Um, through the words that we're using. Sometimes also when we see how much commentary there is, we see how much we rely upon our words to have this sense of familiarity and security, to feel in control. But our words describe appearances, don't they? Our words describe only what we have already known. Our words are often burdened by the associations from the past of making the world to fit into something we have already known. Sometimes that endless commentary, <coughs> it delivers us a sense of control, but it also deprives the moment of mystery. It's like nothing can ever be unknown. Nothing can ever surprise us. In a way, nothing can ever be seen anew. So what is this silence about? It's not just an invitation to stop talking. It is an invitation to come and to begin to explore a deeper level of silence within ourselves. And this is possible. And I really feel I have to affirm that. I mean, I was really surprised. I was speaking with my daughter last week and I asked her how much she thinks. I said, she thinks all the time. I was so surprised. I said, you think all the time? And she said, yeah, I think all the time. I said, you mean from the moment you wake up and the more you think? And she said, I think all day long. I was so surprised. She said, don't you think all the time? I said, no, I don't think all the time. She said, how can you not think all the time? <laughs> you know, how do you know what to do if you don't think all the time? You know? How do you know how to say anything if you don't think all the time? And then it actually came to me that actually this is actually one of the byproducts of meditation practice. You know, it, the nature of the mind is not necessarily to think all the time. I mean, I don't know if this is what you're looking for at all. <laughs> Maybe not. But the nature of the mind is not necessarily to think all the time. The nature of the mind is that it arises and that it passes. It arises and passes. Thoughts arise and pass. Many of our thoughts are creative and useful and, and responsive and relevant, and about 99.9% .9 of them are not. Hmm? Think about the thoughts that we have today. How do they serve us? Now, this is not in any way to judge or to dismiss or to get on our case about the mind and all its busyness. But to hold, I think, that sense of possibility, to hold that sense of possibility of a deep inner stillness, and actually that doesn't mean the absence of movement. It doesn't mean the absence of movement. Stillness is in movement. <coughs> but that deeper inner stillness which is not lost in movement, which is never lost in movement, it is why this silence of a retreat is called noble silence because it is a doorway to that inner listening, that quality of inner alertness, inner listening, from which so much is born. 
Another one of the forms that we use on retreat <coughs> is the mirror and the form of simplicity. Now this task that we engage in here, it begins, this task begins with the story of one person, Siddhartha, the Buddha who made a particular journey in his life. And that journey began with leaving home. And again, this is a kind of archetypal journey. That leaving home, what it symbolizes in, in this tradition, is the willingness to leave behind the world of familiarity and safety and security and going into homelessness or going into the unknown and the unfamiliar. It is a story of leaving behind the security of prestige, of position, of possession, and more subtly, leaving behind the mechanism of control and having and knowing. Now here in this environment, we offer a tremendous amount of simplicity externally, but also in other ways. I mean, when you come on a retreat, you know, your history is really not very significant. You know, no one here ever inquires about, you know, asks you to present kind of a portfolio of your sins and blessings. You know, you come here as you are. No one's credentials are particularly important on a retreat. You know, it really doesn't matter. Um, what your position is, what your portfolio is of meditation experience or of anything else. In many ways, when we come on a retreat, all of us, in a very real way, strip ourselves bare of all of the things that we have gathered in our lives. They are not here, the props that we rest upon. And we offered, are offered, the simplicity of opening to what is in this moment the good, the bad, the pleasant, the unpleasant, the demons and the guardians. And our intention in this practice is not to fix anything, not to perfect anything, not to exercise our strategies or prescriptions, but just to be awake, just to be a loving and compassionate <laughs> presence in the midst of all things. A retreat is, offers the simplicity of having nowhere to hide. Now, I must say, I think this is one of the virtues, and probably many of you who have been to Asia know in some ways that this is the one of the virtues of Asia that you don't appreciate until you've left. And one of the virtues of, of practicing in Asia is that you don't have anything. You know, there, there aren't any, there's nothing to rely upon. There isn't anywhere to hide. You know, if you're sick with that, you're just sick. You know, the food's bad, the food's bad. You know, you, know, you, you have noise, you have discomfort. This is just part of your life. You know, sometimes, you know, you know you've ever noticed around lunch, if you had a few thoughts, you know, is there going to be enough? You know, what if there's not enough? You know, maybe I ought to eat more now in case there's not enough at tea. You know, maybe I better put some aside in case there's not enough at breakfast, you know. The mind how much it can be never, never satisfied. 
You know, how often, you know, I think we've made an art form of complaining in the West. It's become one of our more esoteric art forms. We complain competitively, you know, about who has the worst sore knees, you know, who has the most discomfort, you know, who has the worst mind. And all the time we're often struggling with our world. How am I going to fix it, you know? How am I going to make it secure? Should I write a note to the managers, you know? What am I going to do about my roommate? They're disturbing my meditation, you know. I, I would be really peaceful if the person beside me stopped moving, you know. Or why is this interrupting my meditation? As the mind is always, always demanding perfection. And so we see the simplicity that what is actually offered us here is to step out of that imprisonment. To step out of that imprisonment to learn the les- lessons of patience, the lessons of acceptance, the lessons of generosity. Not through perfecting our world, but through being at home within <coughs> ourselves. Because when we are at home within ourselves, we are at home anywhere. And when we are not at home within ourselves, there is no resting place for us anywhere in this world. Mindfulness is another one of the mirrors, another one of the forms. (coughs) Now, mindfulness doesn't mean going slowly. Everybody knows you can be just as mindless going slowly as going quickly. Mindfulness is the embodiment of sensitivity. It expresses an approach and a relationship to this moment in our world. Mindfulness is saying that there is nothing that is irrelevant. Nothing that is unworthy of our attention. So mindfulness is an invitation to let go of our hierarchies and images of what is spiritual. You know, there's that story about, Zen story about a young student who went racing into, into the master's room, you know, absolutely overjoyed and shouting, saying, Master, Master, I've had a breakthrough. I've had the most wonderful experience, the most enlightening experience. And he went dribbling on about this wonderful experience and my Zen Master just sat there. And when the young student began to run out of steam, the Master said to him, And tell me, where did you leave your shoes when you came in the room? And the young man said, What are you talking about my shoes? You know, I just got enlightened and you're talking about shoes. And the master said to him again, you know, where did you leave your shoes when you came in this room? And the young student said, I have no idea. I wasn't there. I wasn't there. You know, in our lives, I think it is so easy to think in terms of generalities, generalizations, you know. For example, you know, we'd all agree that, you know, there's a real wisdom in letting go as we're stashing a banana in our cup in case we get hungry in the middle of the night, you know. <laughs> or we say, you know, we'll all nod philosophically and say, of course everything changes. You know, everything's impermanent. Meanwhile, we're panicking, you know, because we feel we're going to get stuck with this roommate who snores forever, you know. Mindfulness is about this moment, about the details of this moment, about how we touch our world and how we are touched by our world. Mindfulness is actually a willingness to be a conscious participant in each moment so that our world can touch us in new ways. There's a wonderful 
overcome by Eliot, part of her poem, where he says, We shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all of our exploring will be to arrive where we started and to know the place for the first time. And this is what we do in our meditation. The last of the mirrors that I want to talk about this evening is actually the form of this practice. It's a simple practice. It's a practice of waking up, of being attentive, of cultivating attentiveness to our breath, to our bodies, to thoughts, to whatever is predominant in the moment. We don't practice attentiveness in order to be a perfect breather, in order to have a particular state of concentration, but in order to see things as they are. And we see how challenging that is for us. How often we have a story about how things are. A judgment, a should, a comparison, an evaluation. A wholehearted attentiveness is learning how to let go so that the breath is just a breath, a thought is just a thought, a feeling is just a feeling, cultivating non-dwelling in the world of our bodies, the world of sound, the world of our mind, and seeing how much that world is liberated by non-dwelling. There is no problem with what is. There are many problems in our thoughts about what is. Our shoulds, our judgments, our rejections, our cravings. By cultivating attentiveness, we cultivate closeness and intimacy with ourselves and with the moment. By coming closer to the breath, we are coming closer to this moment. And on deeper levels of attentiveness, division and separation begins to dissolve. The separation between the breather and the breath begins to dissolve. The separation between the listener and the sound begins to dissolve. The separation between the thinker and the thought begins to dissolve. And we begin to understand the nature of communion and the nature of oneness. And I think this is so important to bear in mind as we cultivate attentiveness because we can get so diverted with our ideas about what it's for. But it is for oneness. It is for intimacy. It is to understand the end of separation so that when we breathe, we just breathe. When we listen, we just listen. When we sit, we just sit. And when we walk, we just walk. There is no other agenda except to be wholeheartedly there. All of these vehicles that we use in this practice, all of these mirrors, the forms that we use, they are all teaching us how to let go. They're all teaching us how to let go. By returning to the next step, by returning to the next breath, by returning to this moment, we are learning over and over again the lessons of letting go, the lessons of non-clinging, 
the lessons of non-holding and we are learning the lessons of freedom. Now, you know, in an ideal meditative path, the way most people think of an ideal meditative path, they would think that first, you know, first you have lots of confidence and faith and peace and understanding and calmness, and then you let go. But that's not the reality. In this path, you are asked to really make that leap of faith and to have that trust that first you let go, that this is the first teaching and the first lesson, that first you let go. You're not dwelling anywhere, and through that letting go, there is the flowering of peace, the flowering of faith, the flowering of serenity, and the flowering of understanding. Learning how to rest just within what is. Learning how to rest in aloneness. Learning how to rest in oneness. They are actually not any different. And the Buddha was once asked, what does it really mean to be alone? And he said, being alone, it's about not grasping at anything that has already gone behind. Being alone is yearning not yearning for anything that is yet to come. And being alone is not grasping onto anything that is present. Then we understand aloneness in its deepest sense of all one. Sometimes in our days of meditation, you know, it feels, it might feel like you're struggling and squirming. And that's fine. It's totally fine. It means that you're being disturbed. And I think it's important to remember that the point of meditation is to disturb us. It is to help us to question and inquire, to challenge many of our opinions and images and conclusions about ourselves and about our world. Meditation is a radical exploration. It is not intended to provide a sanctuary of not seeing. And sometimes being disturbed is uncomfortable, but being disturbed at times is also deeply liberating. It's also deeply liberating. So to learn the patience of staying with that, the generosity of heart of staying with that, the commitment of heart of understanding that it is a process of unfoldment, and all we are asked to do is to be present to have that inner, deep inner passion to be awake and to be free. So we have just a couple of minutes quietly together and be a walking chair. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.